Hi everyone, my name is Maddie Dory. I am a senior at Colorado College and I am a sociology major, feminist and gender studies minor. I'm originally from Kima, Texas, which is just south of Houston. Today I will be doing a podcast on our meeting session with Biplop Basu, a founder of Reach Out. Reach Out is a federally funded NGO that deals with matters of police brutality and neo-Nazi terrorism. Biplap and his team provide counseling to victims of racial profiling and then guide them along the path the victim feels comfortable taking to address the event, which could be going to the police or to a psychotherapist. This session fits into the objectives of this course because it highlights the oppression and violence of people of color and immigrants in Berlin. In this podcast, I am looking forward to discussing the similarities of American and German marginalization of people of color and their victimization from police and others within society. Also, I look forward to discussing the paths of change and whether there is a sense of hope about the topic. Intermittently, I will be including live recordings from our talk about Reach Out with Biblap. Each recording could be from anyone who is sitting in the classroom and provide context for each story and memory and reflection that I will talk about today. It also helps provide context about things we will talk about in the discussion. To start off, I will be discussing two memorable moments that I believe capture the personality and character of Biplap Basu meaningfully. This first moment I will be discussing is Biplap's view of self-care when dealing with such traumatic and heartbreaking events. The question that provoked this conversation was, how exactly do you take care of yourself in order to keep going with this job and prevent compassion fatigue? In response to this question, Biplap took us on a journey of privilege and benevolence. He stated that since he is not the one who experienced the violence, that he is simply privileged to listen to the event. Biplap also added on to his response that there is a sense of hope he gains about being able to help and achieve change since he is not at the center of the problem. Somehow, after all of these years of learning, assisting, and experiencing with racial profiling and violence, he stated that he has and will always be hopeful, and that is what keeps him alive today. I wouldn't be able to tell you how others manage it, but I can only tell about myself. For me, um, I, I tell myself, look, Biplab, you are not at the center of this whole thing. The center, the center of this whole thing is somebody else. And don't uh, take yourself as the most important person. So it's not my, um, uh, uh, my suffering which I'm dealing with. Yes, I'm just listening to the sufferings of somebody and trying to transfer or trying to um, trying to um, make the person so um, very independent that that person would be able to cope up with it himself or herself and um, I mean this is a question which I face very often Mm -hmm. people say fatigue like as you said to reflect a bit on this memory of Biplap's talk about self-care, I found his ending note really inspiring that if he is unable to keep hope, then he wouldn't be alive today. And I think that's a strong point coming from someone who's been an activist his whole life, starting from 15, reflecting or protesting the... um, caste system 
to being thrown in prison for getting caught for protesting the gas system, to being an activist to this day in Berlin and founding NGOs and helping victims of these heartbreaking and traumatic events. And I also think what makes his point even stronger is that if he couldn't keep hope, then he would have committed suicide by now. Shows how heartbreaking and traumatic these events have been for these victims, which really makes me want to try to propel change in Berlin, even though I'm nowhere near living in Berlin and wouldn't have the power from far and this far away to help change. And I know we have these same problems in America, so it really makes me want to get involved in some way, even though I wouldn't even know where to start, but I'm sure there's plenty of people I can talk about or talk to about that. Um, but I really hope that I can find it in me to carry his words about um, having the privilege of being on the outside and not taking the event head on and being the one who was injured or hurt or mentally abused by neo-Nazis or police brutality and using that privilege to help others for the rest of my life. The second and last moment I would like to discuss before we head into the discussion piece is the story Biplap told about when he was invited to speak to the German police. Biplap was invited to speak to the police since he deals with victims of police brutality and they were doing a training. After warning the person that invited him that he would be displaying the video of the racist event with police at the KFC at Alexander Platz, Biplap received a surprising reaction from the room of police officers. The policemen began shouting and defending the action the police had done in the video. Refusing to give the men the satisfaction of apologizing or becoming outraged, Biplap remained calm and tried to talk through it with the men. After over an hour of this overexcited interaction by the police, it was Biplap's time to leave. Biplap told us that he was shocked at the reaction he had received, but that the reaction pointed out the inherent institutional problems that lead to police brutality. I don't think anyone was expecting it, he noted. But in case of victims of institutional violence, the whole institution, nobody believes. First of all, no one would believe that you were a victim of police violence. And uh, uh, racial profiling, for example, nobody would believe. And then uh, it becomes extremely difficult to convince the society that some such thing exists. And, um, and it's extremely difficult to find a lawyer because there are lots of very good um, um, criminal lawyers who defend people. But that would be difficult for them to... to yes. They don't want to take that risk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and secondly, they don't believe their clients. They don't believe sure. their clients because nobody believes that uh, police could be wrong. All right. So this is um, uh, a very deep-seated understanding. Mm -hmm. And I think in most of these so-called developed countries, you, you, you see that there is a very strong, deep-rooted confidence in authorities. Yes! That to reflect again on this memory from Biplap's 
talk today I found this story a little bit overwhelming and slightly triggering in my opinion but it really opened my eyes to the inherent institutional problems that we have today within the police force not only in Germany which the story makes it a little more obvious because we're focusing on Germany but in America as well when we have these same problems of racist actions done by police like take the Starbucks incident that just happened recently for example and put that where this story is and you have the exact same thing and I would hope that if we had showed a video of the Starbucks incident at a police training that they wouldn't respond this way but my gut feeling is that they would and when he said this story at the end it really shocked me and I'm sure if I was in his position I wouldn't have expected people to start raising their voices and yelling and just becoming so defensive and insecure about the incident that happened and how they think even if they're in the wrong that they're right no matter what because everyone has to bow down and listen to them but this story was shocking and gut-wrenching and I hope more people can hear this story well I wish this story would spread so people can take it into account and really apply it where is needed I'm not sure how you'd address the situation to make change but I think this is definitely something that displays the institutional changes that need to be made within the police force. Remind me of one of the pitfalls of the public defender system in the U.S. Yes. Because even though in the U.S. there's a right to representation and you have public defenders, a lot of times public defenders are, I mean, they don't want to stay a public defender. Mm, I know. So they're trying to become a judge. And so they're cooperating with officials so that they can yes, keep yes. their allies on their right, side. Right, right. And so their desire to help you sometimes take second place to their own political and career aspirations. Right. And so it's just tough when you have to work with people as a victim who have as much of an obligation to the system as you, if right. not more. Joining me for a discussion piece today is Abby and Lila. So ladies, during our time with Biblat Basu yesterday, I couldn't help but think about the similarities between the United States and Germany when it comes to racial profiling, terrorism, and police brutality. What were some of the similarities y'all found, and maybe provide examples if you have any? I can speak to that. Um, I thought the KFC incident we talked a little bit about as a class uh, really directly paralleled the Starbucks incident we had in the United oh, States. Yeah, and I just think, happened. Yeah, that just happened. And I think, um, one, because they're both just like big corporations, and then two, because the police were involved. But I think the reaction in the United States it gained enough media coverage so that there was pressure on Starbucks, which I don't know the politics of Starbucks, but like it did choose to have that day of like... And they shut down their stores. Exactly, stores <laughs> yeah. everywhere, whereas the KFC incident seemed to be covered up mostly. Right, yeah. Didn't cause much drama. 
Um, yeah, I would say also he was just talking about like the most people in like developed countries trusting authority, but then like right. minorities not, and that is something I would say is really common in the U.S. and just yeah, like a reoccurring thing. Um, and then also kind of I don't know if this is we've kind of moved from the question. My <laughs> anyways, but um, <laughs> it was interesting also hearing him talk about like. Uh, losing hope and I don't know that just reminded me of like a lot of people I know from my high school who were like I why would I like vote why would I like participate why would I do anything like I there's nothing to do anymore um and that just reminded me of him saying like oh I would never lose hope because like I can't with what I do um but right, because he said he like wouldn't live. Yeah, if he didn't yeah. Hope. yeah. But I just feel like a lot of people, even our age, are losing hope, which is too bad. Right, and I feel like that's relevant both here and there. So it kind of does answer part of the question. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I also wrote down that like racial profiling leads to a lack of confidence in police, and like that the state needs to recognize that. And I don't think like either country does a very good job of doing that, and like. Even if, like, one of us is better at dealing with victims, like, how do you specialize in both? And I don't know, like, where you go from there, because obviously I'm not any expert in the topic, but... Yeah, and I feel like, the, at least in the U.S., like, how it's dealt with is just by being spread to, right. like, the world on social media. And then people being like, oh, I guess we have to work cover react. it up on social yeah, media. Yeah, but the cases that don't make it to social media... Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just that our justice system is just a direct conduit into, like, prison labor that's for-profit because we have for-profit purposes and, like, all these other problems. But I don't know how Germany's justice system works, I guess. Yeah. I I just know a little bit he talked about with lawyers. I did think it was interesting that he mentioned that Germany took a very intentional shift, a philosophical shift when they were dealing with um, crimes of this nature. Their focus changed from the rehabilitation of the perpetrators to centering victims, which mm-hmm. I like. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and it's kind of a good way to that they they like. Then this organization exists because of that, you know. So he it really like pushed people into like creating organizations that are doing good things and like well obviously he was like ready to do that but found it yeah but it it like just provided it was like a perfect moment of like but then it was so interesting because i think he did create this um this ngo yeah but it was it which is like a non-government organization Mm -hmm. but it's still like as a result of a government and it's federally funded and it's federally funded not a a criticism at all just something to like think about yeah um another question i have was how do you begin to deal with the problems of ignorance and brutality and i guess in my mind like the first thing obviously that pops up is like oh educate people like but how do you go about educating people about racism after they've already harmed someone and like it's just putting yeah. them in jail like it's obviously not a solution that's like something that i kept yeah. thinking when we were there is like is his end goal of this to like 
not have any more perpetrators or to just like deal with these one-on-one cases like what is his vision you know but I feel like he just deals so much with the victim end of it that there's almost no point in like trying to solve this whole problem when like he is doing so much just on the victim end like he's almost you know playing catch up to like this never-ending cycle but obviously obviously. he's he's but he does more than that with his cop program too like he's very vocal about the issue it's not like Uh that's the only work he's doing but i feel like in some ways he was just he like acknowledges that like shitty things are going to keep happening and like bad people exist but like he's doing but he he also really emphasized i i thought at least that like the result of these bad things isn't just like incidental like these are people like real people and humans that are being harmed and he mm-hmm. like is like oh, i'm gonna validate that and i'm gonna yeah. like treat them with full humanity and like yeah. full emotion right. and like full dignity and but like, in that way it's not like vengeful it's not like go out and get the other guy no, you know because he's i don't think he sees himself as like someone who can solve germany or the world's, but, or yeah. world's problems but then, like, you ask, like, how do you deal with brutality? Um, I don't know how you deal with it or, like, how you even yeah. try to counteract it because Germany has such a history and so does the United States with, like, xenophobia and nationalism and, like, Europe seeing all these new waves of nationalism. I, like, can't... It's scary how parallel it is to the United States. Right. Like, I can't answer why that's happening or, like, how you deal with it, you know? Yeah, and I didn't have this thought when I initially wrote the question, but I'm starting to think about, like, cycles of violence, and, like, is this, like, ever going to stop, or is it going to get as bad as it once was, or, like, what the real cycle of violence and, like, brutality against races is in Germany, and, like, what we should expect to come. I think, I'm sorry. we've already experienced it. I'll keep it brief, but... I don't think it'll ever get to the point where, well, like, hopefully, where we have, like, a Hitler or, like, slavery again. But I think in a, like, increasingly globalized um, world that's, like, so entrenched in capitalism and things along those lines, like, oppression, modes of oppression are going to change. So I don't think it will take the same form of oppression it once was, but I think it will be more nuanced. Right. Yeah, makes sense. No, I was just thinking, I took this like Latin American politics class that was really interesting, and we talked a lot about Brazil and they like more slavery than any country. I don't know that like you know like a ton of slavery in the coffee production and sugar and all this and but then the way that slavery ended, they never were like, and now we have a problem with racism. Whereas the U.S went through this whole, like, Jim Crow phase and everything, you know, Mm -hmm. and then had a civil rights movement, but, like, and that's kind of similar here, like, they, the way that they came out of the World War II situation is, is, like, such a defining factor, and especially for, like, Afro-Germans who didn't have as much, like, of a space in, as, like, in the narrative, you know, Mm -hmm. then... I don't know. I think it's just, I think it's a really good thing that they're saying, like, he was talking about how they're changing terminology and saying, like, no, we have a problem with racism, as opposed to just, like, kind of putting it under the rug. Right. He said, so like, his like, first foundation was, like, one of the only foundations that used the word, like, racist. Yeah. In nonetheless. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like yeah. that's just such an important part of, like, hopefully moving towards good things, because, like, even saying there's a problem is, like, obviously... 
the most important thing. Right. So starting to deal with it. Yeah, and I'm starting to think, like, he he says his, like, whole hope is, like, a path for change. But I'm not... I wasn't quite clear on, like, what exactly he wanted to change. Was it, like, completely stop violence of perpetrators or just change the way people react to, like, racist... Like, just racism in general? Or, like, is Germany so scared of, like, saying they're racist that he wants to change just dialogue completely? I'm a little confused on, like, what exactly his end goal is but I think his movement is really helpful and I can't remember if he said it or if Carolyn said it or someone else we heard this week but they said like after World War II everyone just like dropped the fact that Germany is a racist country Mm -hmm. and um, I'm wondering like how you bring it out from under the radar even though like most people know there is racism in this country but how do you make it like a fact like we are or can be a racist country yeah, I is that say, like I think media media plays a big part yeah, in that, like how US you paint, too. like what you choose to cover mm-hmm. and like how you choose to angle certain stories. Yeah, and like just like organizations like his too that are like, oh, it's a problem because like look what we're doing. We're here dealing with it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was thinking something else. Yeah, so I have another question um do either of you have hope for change with in the u.s for us and then germany for us being here yeah i think i just uh think what he said is really important that like everything moves very slowly and so it's hard when i feel like we're a generation that's so like we're gonna solve every problem but Mm -hmm. every like changing how people think isn't gonna happen in 10 years and you know I do have hope though in that way that like I know it might not be something I see every day in like what I do but hopefully over our lifetimes we will see it I'm so split on that question I like waffle back and forth because I feel like I'm inherently an optimistic person I like to have hope but at the same time, I think we spend a lot of energy and emotion and time learning about these systems of oppression and like mm-hmm. that are continually getting worse. I don't know. So like it's hard to say. And like the trajectory of our nation in the last four years or like the last few years has been really depressing. But then when you do like do this kind of work and you talk to people, you meet really revolutionary and like even radical people that mm-hmm give me hope yeah yeah and like maybe I don't know maybe something like big will happen yeah but like it's hard to say whether that big thing will happen because we hit a breaking point or whether this like slow progress will like get to a point where it can counteract like negative Mm -hmm. things that are happening yeah the thing I struggle with is I have a hard time seeing change in the court system Mm -hmm happening or just law in general happening anytime soon and then obviously that's just like written into politics as well and that's another thing I really struggle to be optimistic about 
but um, I am optimistic that something will change. I just don't know like what will spark that change or like where it will come from yeah. is what I'm looking toward, but. Yeah, I feel like it's also hard just like going to CC and then me being from Seattle, like both places are kind of bubbles. And so I feel like I can say stuff about being hopeful, but then I live in like two very liberal bubbles. And so I am not exposed to a lot of what this country believes. Um, so yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm from Houston. So I get one side of it at home where it's like, oh, we love guns. We love trucks. We love land. So it's like, definitely like back home, it's one thing. And then getting to CC, it's like the opposite. But like the people I surround myself with at home more aligned to my views. So like in some ways, like I'm less exposed to it, but in other ways it's like, okay, like I'm still around it. And I see people driving in cars with Confederate flags on them or like the um, support or is it, what is the sticker, like, Blue Lives Matter or whatever, Um, which kind of, like, that's where, like, a lot of my pessimism comes from, because I do see it when I go home, and being in a bubble at CC, like, does make me more hopeful, and I think it's good to have the balance of, like, reality and, like, hopefulness, and it kind of, that's kind of what keeps me going, I think, so, but, yeah. Um, did any of you have, like, I talked about memorable moments in my podcast earlier. What were y'all's from the talk? Um, just how much you talked about listening. I know he was talking about it in the context of his counseling, but I feel like that's just true for everything, for, like, every person of the entire world, <laughs> just to listen and try to understand something that maybe you haven't directly experienced or whatever it is um just him saying that over and over again like listen and don't question someone else's experience uh I feel like he was trying to tell us that too so that was memorable for me um I thought it was interesting when he was talking a little bit about his past and he said he was an armed revolutionary that's like super intriguing. Yeah, that was, like, yeah. he kind of did whole story. Yeah, in terms of um, advocacy or social justice or even like social movements, he kind of did a one eighty in terms of approaches armed <laughs> revolutionary to like going to prison <laughs> to yeah. like counselor. Right, but I wish he had finished that story. Yeah, I'm sure his life story is fascinating. Like, but, how did he end up in Berlin? Yeah. Uh, but he just seems so sophisticated and like intellectual and kind of mild mannered that I was surprised. But yeah, I was wondering how he ended up here too. But then it seems that his goals and what he's doing like align so perfectly with yeah. everything that goes on here right. and it being like such an immigrant city and yeah. all those things. So yeah, and I thought his cool. like relationship, like growing up with the caste system and then coming here yeah. and just like, how he was able to, like, relate, like, one oppression to the other Mm. was super interesting to me. That was, like, what was that one reading we did on Afro-German woman? I'm sorry, I can't name the author. It may have been Katerina, but... Yeah, um, I think it was. Where she was talking about how, this isn't a direct parallel, but how people, like, women from the Africa diaspora 
facing oppression, like, you all have to talk about your oppressions, and you can't necessarily, like, equate them per se, but you can draw the parallels and, like, Mm -hmm. get structure from that and, like, get Mm -hmm. momentum from that, and it's, like, again, like, drawing parallels from different places around the globe and then, like, getting, learning from that, I suppose. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, well, does, we're about to wrap this up, but does anyone have any closing thoughts or anything they wanted to say about this um, him speaking yesterday? Um, I guess it was just really cool to see how long he's been doing his work and like how he kind of shifts it for whatever situation surrounds him and it's really it was really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked his sense of just like like you said, like sitting and listening, like, but like also not judging whether they're telling the truth or not. Mm-hmm. I think really like shows his respect for humanity. And yeah, but thank you for joining me. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I hope it opened your eyes to some of the similarities of terrorism and police brutality that happen transnationally. I also hope that you are always able to remain hopeful when it comes to change with with these issues. Honor code upheld. Um, I, I personally think you have to live inside a glass, uh, inside a, 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 a tank not to be a victim. Being black or people of color, you have to have an experience. There is no escape. Okay.